morning, good morning again. Um, those of you that are with us at home, I hope everything's going well back there, boys. Yeah. So, okay, Brian's like, you guys are doing all right. <laughs> we had a wild morning. And so um, we just want to welcome you. I want to reiterate a couple of things that we talked about in person here last week. But because announcements were missed um, for the recording, if you were watching at home, um, we gave a huge shout out to our sound booth back there, to Dave and to Brian and just all of the work that they've been doing. We have changed our lighting here and all of that is not so that, wow, aren't we so cool? Doesn't this look professional? It really is for the at home experience and we're trying to make that the best that we can because we know that so many people in our church family are actually watching us from home. And so we're thinking about you and we're thinking about your experience and we're trying to get a little bit better. And with so many changes happening so quickly, every once in a while we have hiccups. And so that might happen again today. And if we do um, have those hiccups, I'm going to cry. Um, Rebecca was really great about it last week, but I don't think I have it in me today. So let's just pray extra hard that that doesn't happen because you'll watch me melt. Um, okay, shifting to something else. I'm a mother, which also means I'm a very embarrassing person. That just, you get the mother title and all of a sudden you're embarrassing. And so, yep, his head is tilting right now. But come up here, my big man of a boy. Right here. I'm hugging you in public. Oh, you can take your face mask off. Um, for those of you that don't know, come closer to me. That way you're in the screen. And look at the camera. Hi, everybody. Do you want to say hi to your life group? Yeah, hi, everybody in our Wednesday night life group online. <laughs> uh, this is my son, Cameron, and he lives in Haiti. And um, he overcame many barriers to be with us um, this morning, and um, you got a passport finally in January. We booked that flight. We were so excited, and then news came that he had to have a negative COVID test three days prior to him hopping on his flight, which in the developing world is not super easy when it already takes you a day just to get to the airport. Compound on top of that were political rioting and that kind of stuff going on, and so by the grace of God, He's standing here, and we get to be with him for the month of February, almost the whole month. So um, we love you. We're glad to have you here. This is my daughter, Kate. She says the live stream is working great. I am now totally in the know. Everything that I would want to know is happening right now. Um, I have no idea what our announcements are this morning, so I'm going to ask Johnny to lead me through this. Oh, okay. Um, that was an announcement we made last week as well, but giving statements went in the mail last week. You should have received them by now. If you did not, it means that we have an incorrect address for you or we've made some sort of a mistake somewhere and there's a hiccup and we want to know about it. We want you to have your charitable giving and be tax deductible and you to have a record of that. And so if there's anything that you need, reach out to us, let us know. Andrea Fan is who takes care of all of that stuff and she will be very attentive to you and getting you whatever you might need. And we do have a place to give online and you can set up recur recurring giving by going to brookviewchurch.com 
And in that online situation, it's really helpful for us if you fill out your address when you sign up for that service. And that was kind of where we had a gap in addresses this year was when we moved to that mobile giving or that online giving situation. So thank you for your generous donations and for keeping our lights on doors open. And even more than that, we are moving forward and taking ground in ministry, even in COVID. And that is a huge testimony to your faithful giving. So thank you. The next announcement that I remember is Cedar Way. Is it true? Yeah, nailed it. Look at me. Didn't even have to look behind me. Um, Cedar Way is happening again um, this Tuesday. And I made a huge error this week. And I did not send out the email with the link. Um, and Wendy Crozier was kind enough to let me know. And I found it this morning. So if you are on our email address list to get notifications and you're wondering, why didn't I get one? Because of me. So if I'm going to send that email out this afternoon so you can just, like, go out instead of watching the Super Bowl, you can go to the grocery store. Okay. <laughs> No, um, it's okay, we will figure it out, but I will send that email out if those of you that are able to would be willing to go and get anything for our distribution that happens on Tuesday this week. And anything that you donate, we'd love to have here on our porch over here by 9 o'clock a.m. That allows us to kind of put everything in bags so that we can put them in cars at Cedar Way. Um, there are plastic bins over here on the ramp. If you're nervous about something, maybe you come at 8 o'clock at night and no one's here. Um, just snap those in and then the, the birds and squirrels and whatever hopefully won't, won't get to those. Thanks to Doug Kenyon for that innovation as part of that ministry. We also are still in need of delivery drivers for the Nourishing Network, and that happens on Wednesday and or Thursday mornings, or you can do both. You can drive a one-hour route. You can drive two routes for two hours. Um, it's really flexible, and um, the, the gentleman from the Nourishing Network, he puts together those delivery routes by Monday. And so if you sign up anytime after Monday, he won't know and be able to get you registered for a route. And so if you signed up on a Tuesday, you would be the Tuesday for the following week. Um, but we see your signups and we will reach out to you and let you know as well via email um, information regarding that. So thank you in advance for all that you are doing for families in need in our community. It is a really, really big deal. Um, Sign up for church. Um, so you can sign up for church on Sundays, and we have all of it through February, the end of February. And as kind of restrictions are lifting and many of us are feeling more comfortable getting around, some of you have come to church in person and you realize, oh, it's actually not the same. It's not as cozy as my blanket and my couch at home, but it's not the same in regards to worship. We want you here, and we're excited to have you, and we have room for you. Um, but as we start to open up a little bit more, it might be that we're like, oh, it might be best to add another service so that it's comfortable for everybody here. And so just keep signing up. Sign up early if you can, that you know that you're coming, and we can make sure that we get everybody in here in a way that um, our governor is happy with our gathering, and so are we. So we want to keep you as safe as possible as we get to celebrate and worship. 
Also, um, restrictions we announced last week are lifted a bit for us in regards to worship. Fifteen of you can now sing, so um, however you want to do that, we'll allow it. Um, but the reality is the heart of that really is to, to keep people safe. And so um, you can sing, but we are just going to go all out on it. We'll keep the all out for on stage here. Um, but for those of you that are watching at home, you probably saw this last week. Our band is a little bit fuller. We have not decided to defy orders. Um, we are actually within the guidelines and we can have up to 15 people on our stage as long as we can stay six feet apart. So we're there. <laughs> we're there. Um, the last thing is your communication card. We love to hear from you throughout the week. And if there's anything that you need, comments, prayer requests, things that you want to sign up for, please fill out your online communication card at brookviewchurch.com. Click on the contact button, and then that'll kind of come up for you. That's all that I have. I'm excited for this morning's message. Bring it, Jason. Oh, man, you guys. Cam, good to see you. My gosh. You guys, today we are, as promised, we are going to dive into some of the craziest stuff, and I think this is going to be awesome. I hope it is. And if it's not, tell me it was anyway. I, I've, I really, I've been drooling over this this morning since the idea first came to me. Because today we are, we are going to do a deep dive into the book of Revelation. Um, we're going to look at creatures with eyes and horns and wings. And you guys, it's going to get nuts. And so I can't wait. But, but, but before that, let me, let me recap kind of where we are. Uh, we're in, this is week four of this five-week series on Scripture. And for the last several weeks, we're, we've been looking at a particular definition of the Bible. Now, there are many ways to define what the Bible is that may be good and true and right, but I, I really find this definition helpful. So here's been our working definition. The Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human that together tell a unified story which leads us to Jesus. And today, what I want us to do is just come back to the idea of the Bible being a, a library, because while all scripture is God-breathed, it did come through human authors. And they wrote in a specific culture, in a specific time, using literary styles and techniques consistent with that time. So they all communicate truth, but they do it in very different ways. So you might say that, in a sense, there's truth in both, like, Shakespeare and Dr. Seuss right? Or truth in both like Robert Frost poetry or a World War II history book. But when you, when you read them, you have to utilize different strategies. 
And this is just as true when we come, with, we come to various genres of Scripture. So as I've mentioned, sometimes people will ask pastors, okay, so does your church read the, the Bible literally or metaphorically? But I really don't think that that is the best way to frame the question and the discussion because in reality, the Bible has a ton of both. So the literary style determines which approach we take. What was the author intending to convey and what literary techniques were utilized to convey it? So last week, we walked together through two different biblical genres, wisdom literature and resistance literature. And today, you guys, we are going to look at apocalyptic literature. Now, apocalyptic literature employs a lot of symbolism and imagery and characters and numbers to represent spiritual and political and social truth. So in this kind of literature, we get these like wild figures, these beasts and animals with lots of eyes or horns or wings or whatever. Turn off your 5G. And so, and then we see there's like seas and there's like precious gems that all sort of represent something. And we find in this kind of literature, we find that this kind of literature is in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we see a ton of it in the book of Isaiah or in Daniel or Ezekiel as well as other places. And then in the New Testament, this literary style makes up much of the book of Revelation. And so today we are going to jump into the book of Revelation and we're going to encounter some wild stuff. And I want to say, first of all, that I am indebted to a guy named Stuart McKnight, who is a theologian and a scholar and a pastor who grew up and um, did his training in Glasgow, Scotland, which I just like the way that sounds. Isn't it just kind of Glasgow? Can we all say that? Glasgow. Yeah, Glasgow. So good. And so much of what we will see today has, has been a ma- made a lot clearer to me because of his work. And that's really good because apocalyptic literature is not easy for us, right? With our modern Western minds, we're, we're just not trained to be able to handle it. And the truth is we don't read anything else like it in our culture these days. We don't encounter anything else like it. So before we get started, let me explain a little bit of how apocalyptic literature works. Here is a good rule of thumb. Everything in apocalyptic literature is real, but not everything is literal. Okay, everything in apocalyptic literature is real, but not everything is literal. When When we encounter creatures with eyes and heads and horns and wings, those creatures are real, but they're not literal. When we encounter a sea of glass and trumpets and bowls of fire, okay, they are real, but they're not literal. So, okay, how does this work? Like, what do you mean? How how can we try to understand this? Well, I would say the best modern equivalent for us, and this is a little bit crazy, but the best modern equivalent for us is the genre of political cartoon. Now, these aren't as popular as they were a few decades ago. Um, I mean, reading the newspaper in, like, paper form, it's becoming rarer. How many of you have a subscription to a newspaper that comes to your house? You guys, I love it, old souls. (laughs) But I think you guys are still, I think you're familiar enough with political cartoons and how they work to see this. So let's look at, like, a recent example of a political cartoon. I found this online. Here we go. 
Okay, you see this? Okay, that, the character on the right, what is, who is the character on the right? Uncle Sam. Okay, and what does Uncle Sam represent? America. Okay, the character on the left, what kind of character is that? Okay, it's a panda. And what does that represent? China. Good. Okay. And so what are these characters doing? What is the activity that's happening? Tug of war. Okay. So in looking at this image, most of us get the general idea. The U.S. and China are engaged in some sort of tension. And in this picture, it's not immediately clear what it's all about. Could be an economic tug of war or technology. Could be military or maybe environmental. Who knows? Okay. But the idea is the United States and China are engaged in some sort of tension. And we look at this picture and we get it, we see that, okay? Similarly, apocalyptic literature is, is symbolic words used to describe reality. So everything is real, but not everything is literal. So what I wanna do now is I wanna paint a picture just with words and see if you guys can kind of see it and get it. So if you're comfortable, you could just close your eyes for a second and try to visualize this. Imagine that you open a newspaper and you see a cartoon drawing. Here's what you see. There is a big muscular eagle wearing a baseball hat with the American flag on it. And this eagle is arm wrestling a smaller but still very muscular beaver. And the beaver is wearing a ski hat with a red maple leaf on it. Okay, now, they are arm wrestling by leaning their arms on a big steel pipe. And out of the pipe, $100 bills are just spewing out. And as the bills land on the ground, they turn into a oozing puddle of toxic green soupy waste. Okay, you guys can open your eyes. Do, do you see the picture? What in the world does it mean? Well, I think most of us can kind of make a little bit of, of sense of that. There's some kind of story going on here where America and Canada are, are wrestling. And it looks like they're wrestling over big money in economics because there's $100 bills spewing out of the pipe. But it also seems to involve the environment. And you can see that sort of depicted in the toxic waste down below. Okay, now, to convey the idea... What this artist is doing is using recognizable symbols that immediately call to our minds something that's real. And the idea represented by the image is real, but it's not literal. There is not some eagle somewhere wearing a baseball hat wrestling a beaver wearing a ski hat. We get that, right? These are not literal, but what they depict is real. This is how apoc apocalyptic literature works. When we encounter imagery in this kind of literature, and it's beasts or whatever, they're meant to convey something real, but not something literal. Okay, so whatever part of your brain you just used to decipher and decode those political cartoons we just talked about, that is the part of your brain that you're going to need to engage today. Sound awesome? Awesome. Okay, here we go. Because we are going to encounter some symbols and beasts and creatures. And this stuff makes up a ton of the book of Revelation, okay, written by John. So the disciple John, one of the 12 disciples, who also wrote the, the gospel of John. Good. And he's attempting here 
to describe the indescribable. And in order to do that, John uses every literary tool at his disposal that made sense for the culture in which he lived. Okay, now we're going to cover all of Revelation chapters 4 and 5 today, two chapters. And we're going to do it like in detail. So put on your seatbelt, hold on to your hair, because here we go. Now we'll tackle this in bite-sized chunks. So here's the first chunk. Here we go. Try to visualize this. Try to visualize this. Here we go. Chapter 4, verse 1. John writes, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. All right, so let's start digging into this imagery. First of all, John says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open, in heaven. Now, this is really interesting, this open door, because right before this, at the very end of chapter 3, there's also a reference to a door, but that door happened to be closed. At the very end of chapter 3, Jesus is speaking to his people, and he says something kind of iconic. He says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and what? And he with me. So the door there, it represents our heart, okay, our mind, our, our life. And the door is closed, but Jesus is politely knocking. By contrast, here in chapter 4, the door of heaven is open. So guys, I just want to say, apparently, both Bob Dylan and Guns N' Roses were wrong. Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Guys, it's open. Okay, John tells us that heaven is open. According to John, it's you and me that actually tend to be locked. So to start this vision that John sees, that he has to somehow communicate, John is being invited on behalf of the people of his day, as well as the people of our day, to, to tell us about reality, to tell us about God's presence in the heavens. So there's, there's this incredible openness right from the beginning. The door is, is open, and the voice says, come. Like, come on in. Come, come through the door. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. So John says he was, he was in the Spirit. And we, don't, we really don't know exactly what that entails. 
But what we know is that he wasn't like physically transported to this scene. John wrote this around AD 90. He wrote it from the prison island of Patmos. And so it's not like his body was transported to heaven. His, his body remained in exile, okay, in prison on the island. But God allowed his mind to envision something. When, when we hear the word apocalypse, like in our culture, right, when we hear the word apocalypse, we usually picture like the end of the world, right? Like there's an asteroid, you know, speeding towards earth or something even wilder, zombies rising up to take something over, yes? Yes. Okay, but the word, the word itself, revelation, for the book that we're reading from, it literally means apocalypse, which can be defined simply as to pull back the curtain, just to pull back the curtain, to be able to look behind the scenes. So to be in the spirit means John is able and able to see what's real in a way that he couldn't before. And the first thing that he sees is a throne with someone seated on it. And throughout this scene, the throne is just mentioned again and again and again. It comes up like 16, 17 times in these two very short chapters. It is the centerpiece of everything that's happening in this scene. This entire scene is about the throne room of God. Now imagine for a second that you're John, and you're the one having this vision. You are enabled to see this otherworldly reality that blows your circuits. And now you're tasked with explaining to others what you've seen. Where do you even start? How in the world do you do it? Well, John uses all kinds of symbols and figures that would have been very familiar in his day. Now, we too have very familiar symbols in our day. They're just different. Okay, if we see an, an eagle with a USA hat wrestling a beaver with a maple leaf hat, we immediately have a pretty good idea of what this image is depicting. In the same way, John used symbols that were very familiar to his audience. Okay, first century churches in Asia Minor that were made up of folks that, many folks that really knew the Old Testament well. So it makes perfect sense that many of the images John employs, they actually come straight out of the Old Testament. So he continues. And the one who sat there on the throne had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Okay, so the one on the throne looked like jasper and ruby, or some translations have carnelian, these precious gemstones. Now, what in the world do we make of that? I mean, it could just mean that God is like, regal and, and precious and, and valuable, but, okay, but why jasper and ruby? That's very specific. Again, much of the time in Revelation, the imagery is borrowed right out of the Old Testament, and in the Old Testament, here's the thing. In the Old Testament, the high priest would go on behalf of Israel into the, the most holy place, and when he'd go into that place to represent all of Israel, he would wear a breastplate okay, over top of the ephod that Casey talked about about a month ago. He'd wear this breastplate, and on that breastplate, there were 12 gemstones on it, each one representing one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So these, these gemstones were arranged in four rows of, of three okay, across this breastplate. Of those 12 gemstones... The first gemstone and the last are jasper and ruby. 
So the image of Jasper and Ruby seemed to be, the idea seems to be that all of Israel is like now right there with God. So the, 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 from the first tribe of Israel to the last tribe, all of God's people are now in harmony with God and in his presence. And then encircling the throne is what John says is an emerald rainbow. What, what color is emerald? Green. So, okay, how does this work? It encircles the throne. First of all, rainbows don't make a complete circle, John. Right? And second, here's the thing about rainbows. They're made up of multiple colors. Roy G. Biv, baby. <laughs> right? That's how I learned it. Does, does anybody else learn it that way? Roy G. Biv, here we go. Okay, this rainbow is a complete circle, and it is all green. What in the world is happening here? Well, well, in the Old Testament, the rainbow is a symbol that God gave Noah, right, as a sign of mercy. So encircling the throne, with it encircling the throne now, is, is, is complete. It's complete, never-ending mercy. The mercy of God just emanates all around the throne room. And this mercy is green, meaning God wants us to recycle. <laughs> right? What else could it be? Well, actually, that's, that's more our symbol for green than it was theirs. Um, in the scriptures, different colors have different meanings. And green, okay, in the Old Testament, as we can envision, because it kind of has the same meaning for us, green is the color of health and healing and life, right? We, we live in what city? Emerald City, right? Yeah, because it's green and beautiful here. And so this is the color of nature. And so, you know, green was a powerful symbol. You think about the Middle East where it was arid desert. Think about how powerful of a symbol that color was for them. And here, what, what, what it's representing is, is healing and life just bursting forth. So John is enabled to see behind the curtain, to see reality, to see God and what he's like and all that surrounds him. And now he has to find a way to explain it, which is an impossible task. But he gives us a glimpse of what we can sort of understand. The idea that God is on this throne and he is glorious and he is harmonious with his people. And he emanates mercy and life and he heals. And this is all just happening all the time, all around the throne room. Next, we're told, surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. And seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their head. So the 24 thrones with the 24 elders represent, okay, what does it represent? It represents all of God's people. How? How does that work? Well, in Israel, a little Bible trivia for you, how, how many tribes were there in Israel? Okay. And then in the New Testament, how many disciples were there? Okay. So when you add them, you get 24, and all of that is brought together. And they're, we're told they're dressed in white because they have been made pure. They are, they are righteous. And they have thrones themselves. They have thrones, meaning they've been given authority. And they have crowns, giving them a royal identity. 
The image is that God has surrounded himself, you guys. He has surrounded himself with his people. His people that he has blessed and given authority and identity. So these 24 sitting on thrones with crowns, who do they represent? They represent all of God's people. They represent, you guys, they represent all of us. And they are before the throne just pouring out worship, blessing God. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Now, this image is a reference to Israel. Okay, the, the thunder and the lightning is an image to, to Israel. Again, an Old Testament reference. Crazy. At Mount Sinai with Moses. At the giving of the Ten Commandments and, and God's law. In that scene, there was thunder and there was lightning. There was this power uh, the, the, the Israelites were given a glimpse. The, the curtain was peeled back for a second, and they were given a glimpse of God's majesty in that moment. And here, John reiterates that power and that majesty. God has lost none of it. And then there are seven lamps, seven torches, seven burning flames of God's Spirit. In Revelation, and really in the book, uh, uh, like, Revelation 7 is, is, the, is kind of a favorite number. It comes up again and again and again. And it means fulfillment or completion. So the picture here is that the Holy Spirit is fully present. Okay, the fire represents the Holy Spirit. You see that in other places in Scripture as well. It, uh, it's uh, Pentecost in Acts 2. What is it that came down and descended on, on the people? Fire, tongues of fire. And we're told that as that happened, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And then if you remember in the Old Testament, when God led Israel through the wilderness, he was actually present with them for years in a physical way, um, which was pretty cool. He was a pillar of cloud by day, but by night he was a pillar of what? Fire. So fire kind of is this image used in Scripture as the presence of God. Now, why seven lamps or torches or flames? Well, in the Bible, seven means complete. It begins at the very beginning with God creating in how many days? Seven. And, and, and it just this is a number that just continues on and on and on. So God is completely, okay, this is complete. He is completely present. Next comes something that, you guys, this gives me chills. This is awesome. John says, also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Now, Revelation is a letter written to churches in John's own day, specifically to seven churches in Asia Minor. Then it was to go to them and then eventually be distributed everywhere. But they were living under the brutality of the Roman emperor Domitian. And they were being persecuted and arrested and tortured and killed. They were being harassed and victimized for their faith in Jesus. But John says, I looked and I saw a sea of glass, calm and clear as crystal. And when those people in that day would have heard that, they would have just said, wow. Now, why in the world would that have been so meaningful for them? Well, for the Jewish community, who in the late first century still made up a large percentage of the church, for Jewish people, the sea was a terrifying place. 
Okay, in their legend and culture, the sea was a place of, of chaos. It was a place of fear where monsters like Leviathan just reigned. They didn't know mysterious creatures they hadn't even uncovered yet were there. They were terrified of it. You guys, the, the Jews were not like the Vikings who loved the thrill of the ocean, right? For, for the Vikings, the bigger the sea, the better, right? Skull, right? But the Jews, the Jews, it turns out, were not seafaring people. The, the Jews were land lovers. The ocean terrified them because it represented chaotic evil. But here, we're told that before the throne of God is a sea, and it is clear and calm like glass. You guys, John is saying, he's saying, friends, to these people persecuted and terrified. He's saying, friends, everything that you've been scared of is gone. There's nothing to fear anymore because the wildness and the chaos and the darkness has lost all of its power. There is now just calm and peace. Everything that scares you, all the brokenness, whether it's physical threats to you or inner turmoil, broken relationships, hate, injustice, temptation, everything that scares you, it's gone. And there is now just peace and calm surrounding the throne room of the king. So John is using these colors and these symbols to try to communicate. And just a taste of this, uh, of like, for anybody that's willing to listen, just a taste of this mind-blowing vision that he's seeing in the presence of God. And next, it gets even more unusual and, and interesting. He says, in the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, if you were to try to draw a picture of these four creatures and share them with, like, your three-year-old before bedtime, <laughs> it would not be comforting at all, right? That's terrifying. But the point of what John's doing here isn't to terrify us. It's to, to lead us to awe. So please do not get too wrapped up in the grotesqueness of these creatures. This is where we really need to tap into the part of our brains that went to work in decoding and deciphering the political cartoons. Um, remember, John keeps saying the word like. He keeps using it over and over and over again. Some of you are trying to get your 12 and 13-year-olds to stop using that word. <laughs> but he uses it again and again and again. Okay, it was, it was how do I describe it? Well, it was, it was like a lion. It was, it was like an ox. It was like a man. It was like an eagle. These, these creatures are symbolic. They are, they are real, but they're not literal. And because we, we can get so derailed by this, you guys, it really, it can just be like, okay, so there's a lion with six wings and, and eyes all over it, even under the wings, like, okay, really, how could that even work? 
I mean, wouldn't the wings get in the way, and wouldn't it poke itself in the eye all the time? I mean, like, that's not very functional. But this is all theological symbolism. Just like an eagle arm-wrestling a beaver. I don't know if you guys ever thought about this. Eagles don't have arms. (laughs) How did you even visualize that? And the thing is, it's not the point. And you get it. It's symbolism. So what do these four creatures represent? Well, they represent all living creation. You have the lion, the king of the wild beasts. You have the ox, the strongest of the working beasts. You have the eagle, the greatest of birds. And then a man representing all of humanity. So in this picture, all of living creation is represented before the throne. And all four creatures have eyes all over them. Okay, what what does that mean? It means they see reality as it actually is. They see the fullness of God and his power and his mercy and his peace. And what is their posture before the throne? It is a posture of utter worship. All of creation is before the throne of God in absolute worship. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The description continues. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? John says the one on the throne is holding a scroll. Well, what is this scroll? Well, it appears that this scroll is all of history. We're told that it is filled with writing on both sides, like it is filled up. There's no space for any more to be written. Everything everything to be said and done has been said and done, and history is now closed, and it is sealed with seven seals, which means it is completely sealed. And so in a loud voice, the angel asks, who is worthy to open the scroll? So John says, but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. So the angel is pleading, who can unlock history? And no one is found. And how does John respond? We're told he starts to weep and weep. And the, the, word, the words used here, doesn't, they don't mean that, that John got a little misty-eyed, got kind of a soft lump in his throat. The imagery here is that he starts heaving and sobbing uncontrollably. Why? Because there's no one to open history and heal this mess. And it's like in this moment, John is representing all of us before the throne. It is the tears of all of humanity, everything that we cry about, everything that causes us to weep, all the sadness, all the wickedness, all the foolishness, all the injustice, all the violence and neglect and brokenheartedness. All of it is symbolized by John weeping here. Is there no one who can figure all of this out? Is there no one who can step in and fix all that's broken? And check out what happens. 
Then one of the elders said to me, to John, in his heaving, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So who can open the scrolls? Only the lion of the tribe of Judah. Guys, in this moment, please do not visualize Aslan. <laughs> Jesus is not a lion, and he never will be. This is the title of a, from the Old Testament, a great warrior king. The descendant of Judah, the one who triumphed over death and evil itself, he's the only one with the authority to open the scroll for humanity. He is the only truly wise human king. He is the Lion of Judah. So John looks, expecting to see this powerful, wise warrior king. But what he sees is something entirely different. This is like a bait and switch. This is awesome. Verse 6, he says, Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and, and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell, fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Wow, the, the lion who can open the scroll looks like a lamb. Okay, verse 6. Let's work through this. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. John does not see the lion he was expecting, but instead a lamb. Now again, Jesus is not a little baby sheep. This is imagery. Just like when John the Baptist said, as Jesus came near, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. In that moment, Jesus didn't fall down and just like morph into a baby sheep. Bah. Right? The, the idea was Jesus, who remained a man standing there, would die for the sins of the world. That all of the lambs sacrificed in Israel for century after century after century, all of that was just a warm-up. All of that was just preparing the way for people to understand who Jesus is and what he would do. They paved the way for the real sacrifice of the Lamb of God, of Jesus. And the man Jesus, who was slaughtered on the cross, it says, now has seven horns. 
So this spiritual power that encompasses everything. Okay, seven. And the eyes are symbolic. He has all knowledge. He sees it all. Nothing is hidden from him. He is the only one wise enough to handle the scroll. But he's also the lion and the lamb. And when he takes the scroll, you guys, what happens? The heavens burst into worship. They're like, yes, yes, you've got the scroll. You, you've got us, everything in our lives, everything in history, everything in our families, all of our sin, all of our brokenness, all of our unfulfilled longings, all our regrets, all our guilt, all our pain and wounds. You, Jesus, hold all of it in your hands. And so the heavens erupt in worship. Verse 7, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures, okay, all of creation, and the 24 elders, all of God's people, fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. So they lift up prayers like incense. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then this whole scene, it closes with a stunning visual. And I actually don't think this requires a ton of explanation or interpretation. I think when we see it, we get it. But try to feel the magnificence of this. John says, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Then four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. What an incredible moment of worship. Because Jesus, the Lion of Judah and the Lamb of God, is holding the scroll, all of history, all human wickedness and brokenness, and all the grace and mercy and healing of the gospel are with him and in him. Everything is in the scroll, and he's holding it all, and he's before the throne, and he's surrounded by his people and by, by his creation. That is the vision that John wants us to see because this vision can literally change everything. And it's not just because it gives us hope for our future one day, which it does, but because it blows up our understanding of reality right now. Guys, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you what I believe, but I'll also say, I wish I believed it so much more. I wish I believed it so much more. 
I believe that if our eyes were opened to spiritual reality as it actually is, just like John in the apocalypse, the pulling back of the curtain, if we could see into the spiritual realm, and if that happened, if our eyes were opened, we would see that this world and all of its history and all of its people, all of humanity, it exists in the throne room of God. Revelation chapters 4 and 5 are not just describing a future reality. They are, but it's not just that. They're describing to us the concrete reality of life as it actually is now. This isn't just a picture of the future. It's a picture of reality as it is now. The throne room, it is real, and it is all around us, but we are mostly unaware. If we could see, even for a second, we would see the myriads of angels And we would see the presence of the Father. And we would see the magnificence of the Son. And we would see the Holy Spirit encompassing everything. And we would realize that in reality, our whole lives, we have been in the very presence of God. We have been in the very throne room of God. And yet we've never figured it out before. Why? Because of all the noise and the distraction and the pain and the difficulty of life. And so our our faith, the size of a a mustard seed, is just unable to grasp it. But John here is inviting us to begin to see what he sees, to begin to apprehend reality, that we are in the throne room of God, that we are immersed in the presence of God. So when we we pray, we we aren't praying to a God who's, who's far away, who, who, if we shout, might just hear the distant whisper. He's right here, right now. And you have been in the throne room your entire life. The idea, this idea to me, it reminds me of what I think is a spine-tingling scene from the Old Testament. This is so cool. The prophet Elisha is being hunted down by the king of Aram. And Elisha and his servant stop for the night to sleep in a city. When Elisha's servant gets up and, um, and goes out early the next morning, the enemy with horses and chariots has surrounded the entire city. So he runs to the prophet. He runs to Elisha and he says, Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? And Elisha responds, Don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then comes a momentary glimpse into spiritual reality. The curtain is torn back. It says, And Elisha prayed, Open his eyes, Lord, that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. He looks and he sees this army of angels on horses and and chariots of fire And they blind the entire Aramean army, and Elisha and his servant and the whole city are saved. But think about how crazy that moment was. For a split second, Elisha and his servant are able to see reality as it actually is. The curtain is pulled back. It's an apocalypse, and they see it. Elisha prays, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. I'll just close with this. One time, Paul, the Apostle Paul, was preaching in Athens. So he's preaching in Athens, and a few Greek philosophers hear him, 
and they're intrigued. They want to hear more. So they invite Paul to a gathering of philosophers called the Areopagus. And so he goes and he stands before some of the brightest minds of the time, and he explains to them the mysteries of Christ. And so talking to these pagan Greek philosophers who believed in Zeus and Apollos and all of that, he explains, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. There's no temple or structure that somehow contains God's presence. In other words, for us, he's not just in the churches. His presence is everywhere. Paul goes on, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, unlike Zeus and Apollos and the other Greek gods. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. He is the giver of everything and all of life. He says, from one man he made all nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. So God has ordained both when and where you're going to live. Your life is no accident. God put you right here, right now. Why? Paul says, God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. God wants us to seek him and reach out for him, and we can find him because he's not far away. You guys, he is right here, right now. In this place. And he will always be wherever you are. Paul then adds on, he says, For in him we live and move and have our being. Like, do you see it? Can you envision it? You could maybe sum it up this way Our entire lives are lived in the throne room. We are the living creatures in Revelation. We are part of the 24 elders. We are before the throne. And the rainbow of mercy, it surrounds us. And the scroll is is in the hands of the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God, who holds all of history. And this is all real. It's not literal, but real. And it is happening right now and will continue forever. If only we could see it. If only the curtain could be pulled back. And John is saying to people enduring great suffering, this image is reality. It's not literal, but it is very real. And he's saying to them, so you have nothing to fear. The lamb holds the scroll. Your life and your existence are in the hands of of one who loves you and has laid it all down for you. The only wise human king. He's got you. No matter what happens in this short space, he has got you. Okay, guys, that's apocalyptic literature. And I think it's pretty good. So let's pray. Father in heaven, Father in heaven, would you open our eyes? God, would you, would you pull back the curtain for us that more and more and more we might be able to see things as they really are. We might be able to see reality. 
and then live in light of it. God, would you open our eyes? This morning, as we, as we worship, would you open our eyes? As we go home and we go to a Super Bowl party and we eat you know, potato chips and dip, would you open our eyes? As we're with people that we love and maybe some that we're not so fond of, but would you, would you open our eyes? God, would you enable us to begin to live into the reality of your throne room? And I pray for, for all of us here who, who are facing fears and anxieties and, and, and stuff that's just overwhelming. Like, the, like the, the, the people who followed you in John's day that were scared at any moment they could be arrested and tortured and executed. Would you bring us peace and comfort knowing that the scroll is in the hands of the only wise king and that we are held in his grip? God, would you make that a reality more and more for us? We believe it, but help us to believe it more. By the power of your Holy Spirit within us, in Jesus' name.